Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. It talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, today I have a really great guest, uh, Dale Bredesen, who said his last rhymes with medicine, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, he's a professor in the Department of Molecular and Medical Pharmacology at the David Geffen School of Medicine, all part of UCLA. The founder, president, CEO of uh, the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. Uh, he's an author, a New York Times bestseller. He's written a number of books on Alzheimer's. So I wanted to talk to him today about Alzheimer's. So Dale, thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. Appreciate it. Yeah, how did you get interested in Alzheimer's and why? What's your background with it? Yeah, actually, I got interested in the brain when I was a freshman at Caltech and read a book that was about the similarities between the computer and the brain. And uh, so I got, got interested in what, what actually happens with the brain. How does it work? And then ultimately, what goes wrong with it? So this is called Machinery of the Brain by Dean Wooldridge. Fascinating book. And uh, so I went to a medical school to learn about diseases of the brain. What I found out was that, in fact, this is the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure, as you probably know. As they say, everyone knows a cancer survivor. No one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. So I was very interested in why is it that these neurodegenerative diseases, whether you're talking about Alzheimer's or frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia, PSP, CVD, I mean, on and on, this has been the area where we physicians have failed. And so became a neurologist and started then working when we had nothing to offer these people. Uh, went back to the lab uh, back in, this was now 1989, uh, to see if we could understand the fundamental nature of this problem. So my laboratory group and I spent 30 years going through what actually drives this process at the molecular level with the hope that we could begin, if we could understand it, in a basic enough way, we could begin to fashion the first effective treatments. And I think it's been very exciting. We reported the first reversals of cognitive decline in patients with Alzheimer's and pre-Alzheimer's back in 2014. And then, as you said, wrote a book in 2017. It's now out in 35 different languages. And uh, really looking at the first people, what can you actually do? And I think that it's really taught us a lot about not just about Alzheimer's disease, but about medicine as a whole and the difference between 20th century medicine and 21st century medicine. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's um, probably 18th century, 19th century medicine, and then 21st century medicine are maybe more on the right track because they're considering diet and lifestyle yeah. and not just medications. And then 
20th century medicine seemed to, you know, kind of get pushed into the drug regime and uh, ignore everything else. So hopefully we're returning to a, a more holistic overall view of medicine. Yeah, you know, and we're agnostic. Whatever is going to help make patients better and make us understand what's the problem. As you know, a 100 years ago, most of us were dying with simple illnesses. And when I went to medical school, which was in this way back in the 70s, they taught us about to figure out what it is, you know, what's the diagnosis. And then you write a prescription or you send the person to surgery. And now 21st century medicine is not so much about what it is, but about why it is. Why did you get this problem? And virtually all of us today are dying, not of these simple illnesses like tuberculosis or diphtheria. We are dying of complex chronic illnesses, Alzheimer's, cancer, uh, you know, other degenerative diseases, cardiovascular disease. These are all complex chronic illnesses and they have many more components. And when you actually look at what drives the degeneration in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's, what you see is that there are dozens and dozens of different potential contributors. So you have to look at it in a very different way than this, this old idea of we're going to write a single prescription and it's going to make things better. And as you know, there have been over 400 clinical trials for Alzheimer's drugs that have failed. The best we can yeah. do so far is pretty minimal. Yeah, I interviewed a, a lady about a year and a half ago. and She, I guess, was doing a meta-analysis of 150 Alzheimer's trials. And I said to her, well, how many of them looked at diet and exercise? Yeah. You know, she's like, oh, that's that's too hard to look at. None of them. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I didn't say anything, but I was in my mind. I was like, "Well, there goes more more billions to be lost in the future." I think because yep. they they refuse to even look at this part of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we just completed a trial, and this is the first trial that flipped the script. So the bottom line, you mentioned you know lifestyle and diet and things like that, but the bigger story here is it's about figuring out for each person what's driving the problem. And typically we find 5, 10, 15 different things that are all contributing and then addressing those with a personalized precision medicine protocol. So instead of predetermining, which is what all, all the previous trials predetermine a treatment, they say, okay, whoever comes in for this trial is going to get drug A or lifestyle change B or what have you, which again makes no sense. And that instead, what we want to do is look for each person, evaluate them. You get it. You need to get a larger data set. You know, these are human brains. These are complicated things. You need to get a larger data set and look at all the different potential contributors. The good news is we know about dozens and dozens of these. So you want to look at them and then you want to say, okay, this person has these seven, 10, whatever it is, number of things that are contributing to their cognitive decline. We're going to target those. And when we did that with this trial, really spectacular outcomes. We're actually writing it up right now, but uh, very, very positive results. Now, in contrast, there was a big announcement just a couple of weeks ago about a, quote, major success for a drug, which doesn't make anybody better, doesn't stabilize anybody. But the big success, in quotes, was that it slowed the ongoing decline by about one third. That led to an increase in the stock value of its company by $20 billion in one day. So we're, we're getting results that are far, far better than that. And, you know, this, I, this old idea of we're going to just slow your decline, you know, that's a 20th century approach. Yeah, tell me, what are the current paradigms that are used to explain Alzheimer's? You know, I've heard a lot about plaques and tangles and amyloid and Dow. And what does your model look like and how is it different? Yeah, you know, that is an excellent question because this has been the problem. When you have something like, you know, COVID-19, we know what the problem is. The virus has been sequenced. We know it's a viral illness. You know, we know exactly what's going on. Even with cancers, we know changes in oncogenes and changes in tumor suppressor genes and changes in metabolism. All these things are clear and immune system abnormalities, all of these things. But that has been the problem with neurodegenerative disease. As you said, You've got different groups that spend their whole careers. So there are, there are more than 12 different, uh, different uh, theories. So it's about amyloid collecting in your brain. It's about misfolded proteins. It's about tau. It's about prions. It's about herpes simplex. It's about P. gingivalis. It's about gingipane, which is something that's made by P. gingivalis, which is a, which is a bacterium from your oral microbiome. You know, it's about chlamydia. It's about 
uh, you know, on and on. It's about demyelination in the cortex. Uh, it's about APP amplification. Every group has its own pet theory. Unfortunately, before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Not a single one of these theories has led to successful treatment where you actually reverse the cognitive decline. So when we studied this, we looked at how, what's the, what is the fundamental nature of this? And I think you know, your question really does get to the crux of the issue. It's because doctors don't understand what this disease actually represents that we have been so unsuccessful in all these different clinical trials. So what our research suggested is something quite different, that this is fundamentally an insufficiency in the support of a network. So what happens is your nervous system has different subsystems. It's got you know, motor control, which is abnormal in Parkinson's disease. It's got power of, of motor support, which is what's abnormal in ALS. And it's got a plasticity system, which is what's abnormal in Alzheimer's disease. And each of these things has its own Achilles heel. So you, you know, you've got to have certain things working. Now in Alzheimer's disease, the bottom line is that this insufficiency involves four groups of things. So you've got to have number one, enough energetic support. That means blood flow. That means oxygenation. That means ketones and glucose to burn. That means your mitochondrial functioning, all these things that contribute to energetics, critical. And most people who have Alzheimer's do not have optimal energetics. Number two, it means trophic support. That's three things, basically. That's growth factors like nerve growth factor, BDNF. It's hormones, estradiol, testosterone, thyroid hormone, all these, progesterone, pregnenol, all these things. And then uh, it is nutrients, things like B12, uh, vitamin B12, thiamine, things like that. So th that's the whole uh, trophic side of things, which you, again, you need to have support. You reduce your BDNF, it's very clear, you increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease. You reduce your estradiol, especially you reduce it suddenly, you increase your risk. And by the way, you can trace the molecular pathways from estradiol to binding to estrogen receptor, to entering the nucleus of the cell, to affecting hundreds of genes. One of those actually comes out and cleaves APP, which is the molecule that gives rise to the amyloid. So you're actually going away from the amyloid, the Alzheimer's side. And so we can see now with this approach, why all these other theories are partially correct. There's a course oh, you've wow. heard of the type three diabetes. This tells you how this actually works. And by the way, it's the only one that actually predicts how to make people better correctly. And so we, you know, we address these. So those are two things. Then the, the other two things. Third thing is pathogens. Anything that causes inflammation, and that can be from leaky gut. It can be from P. gingivalis, as I mentioned earlier, people who have recurrent uh, herpes simplex, HHV6A, all these pathogens that cause in the brain some degree of inflammation. Um, this is another important contributor to Alzheimer's disease. And by the way, the pathologists have been telling us for years, you look in the brains of these patients, you find those organisms. So they are contributing. And the amyloid that we've vilified and the drug companies are trying to get rid of is actually an antimicrobial peptide. It is part of your innate immune system. So really? interestingly, huh. yeah, there's a, so, you know, we, people die in COVID-19 from cytokine storm. You've got this mismatch between the innate system, which is turned on dramatically, and the adaptive system, which is not turned on enough to get rid of this thing. And so you're producing the cytokine storms that kill you. Well, Alzheimer's is cytokine drizzle. 
it's not as dramatic. It's not as acute. It goes on for years, but there is still this fundamental mismatch between the innate system activation and the adaptive system, which is not dealing with effectively getting rid of these various pathogens. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So the fourth, yeah, I, got, I, got, I got a quick, quick yeah, question yeah. here. Please. Um, if amyloid is an antimicrobial peptide, does that say that there may be a microbiome of the brain that we haven't observed yet? You know, that is such a good question because there are ongoing studies. So Dr. Rudy Tanzi, great professor from Harvard, uh, he and his colleague, Robert Moyer, reported a number of years ago this, this antimicrobial effect. And so he's gotten interested in that story, and they are looking at what is the normal microbiome of the brain. Of course, we were all taught in medical school that it should be a sterile organ, and it's and the jury's still out. Um, it's not clear whether there should be something there and there. This is just a change in the microbiome, or whether there should be nothing there. It should, should truly be sterile. And these various things that we find, and, and by the way, you find them in so many of these Alzheimer's patients. They've pathologists have reported fungi, spirochetes, bacteria, viruses. I mean, this is a, a zoo. Uh, so you've got a lot of things there. And yes, your brain is defending itself. This is, again, a fundamental misunderstanding. When you look in the brain, that what it's trying to do is defend itself to, against these various insults. And so the goal is not to get rid of the defense. The goal is to understand what it's defending itself against and then target those things. Now, after you do that, no problem with removing the amyloid. You don't need that defense anymore. But we've seen a number of people where you just remove the amyloid and they actually get worse. So, yeah, the whole view of this is, has been backward, unfortunately. And I think that's one of the reasons it's been so unsuccessful. So the, and then the fourth okay. one uh, is toxins and the toxins come in three groups. Um, they are the inorganics, things like mercury, air pollution, big player, California fires. These are all important for cognition and cognitive decline. Second group is organics uh, and everything from glyphosate to toluene to benzene to formaldehyde and on and on. And then the third group is the biotoxins. So you know, if you're living around specific molds, and this not all molds, but the big five are stachybotrys, penicillium, aspergillus, uh, ketomium, and wallemia. Those are the big five. Um, they make often biotoxins that damage the nervous system, that damage the immune system. And so they can absolutely contribute and often do to cognitive decline. So those are the four groups. And you need to optimize those four groups. Get appropriate energy, get appropriate trophic support, reduce inflammation, and reduce toxicity. And these people get better. And you may need things like stem cells as part of that to drive them to uh, to regeneration and ultimately to improving their brains but we see again and again and again that people can improve, especially if you start early. And again, here's something completely backward. People have been told, don't bother to come in because there's nothing that can be done. Or often they're told, oh, you're just getting a little older. This is normal. No, it's not normal. As you're getting older, if you're doing the right things, you should keep your cognition very effective. You should be sharp till 100. And so we encourage people either get on prevention. And we recommend everyone 45 years or older, just like we know when we turn 50, we should get a, we should get a colonoscopy. If you're 45 or older, please get a cognoscopy and simple to do. You can actually go on mycognoscopy.com and get a cognoscopy and just some simple blood tests and online cognitive assessment. And if you're having problems, an MRI as well. But if you're not, that's an optional part. Everyone should be on prevention. And if not, please get in as early as possible, because the people who come in early, virtually 100% of them get better. The later wow. you wait, the harder it is. Now, we have seen some people who are very far along who improve, but they typically don't come all the way back to perfect. So we recommend please get in early. It's been shown very clearly that typically the diagnosis of Alzheimer's occurs about 20 years after the beginning of the pathophysiology that was documented by serial PET scans and serial spinal fluid analyses. So this really is, you've got a tremendous window of opportunity, but it's important to remember that a disease that we've always thought about as a disease of your 60s, 70s, or 80s is really a disease of your 40s, 50s, 60s, and even into your mm. 30s. 
So don't let this go on while you're having problems. Get in as early as possible. So you have a, a matrix of, I believe, what, 24 markers or ratios to look at? Is that right? As part of your recode system? Yeah, it's it's uh, we actually look right now at 150 different things. Some of these, though, are historical and some of these are various lab tests. Uh, so, yeah, and, and we we identified subgroups. So we identified six different types of Alzheimer's. So, for example, some people have this mainly because they have a pro-inflammatory state. No different than, you know, people who are getting cardiovascular disease because of a pro-inflammatory state. It can be from poor dentition. It can be from leaky gut. It can be from organisms, you know, all sorts of different things. So that's type one or inflammatory. Type two is atrophic. So these are people where it's very different. They're, it's not so much that they have ongoing inflammation. They just don't have the support, the trophic factors that I mentioned earlier, to support a brain. You've got about 500 trillion cents. That's an incredible computer inside your head. You need to support that. And many people, as they're getting a little older, are not supporting it adequately. And then there's type 1.5, which is glycotoxic. And these are people who have insulin resistance, incredibly common. There are about 80 million Americans who have insulin resistance. Um, and I should mention, by the way, we've had over 500,000 people in the, in the United States die of COVID. About a hundred times that many people of the currently living Americans will die of Alzheimer's. So it's actually a much, much larger pandemic than the COVID-19 pandemic. Wow. Then type three is toxic, type four is vascular, and type five is traumatic. So you want to know those particular things, and we evaluate those. Unfortunately, you know, your typical doctor is not looking at all these different things, and you need to look at them to know whether you have risk or whether, you know, the, which things are cognitive decline if you already have it. And again, the old idea of doing these very, very tiny data sets and then telling people, yeah, it's Alzheimer's. We, you know, we don't know what causes it. There's nothing to do. Take this drug. You're not going to do very well. I mean, that's, that's barbaric. That's really, really out of date. Yeah. So is the, is the start of all this to do a cognoscopy process with your organization or, you know, how do people start on the path to evaluating where they're at and then helping themselves? Yeah, and I think it's a great way to go. And we set up uh, a company specifically to do that, to, to write the software. There needs to be you know, algorithms, software to look at these larger data sets. That is the way of the future for all of these complex chronic illnesses. You can certainly go to a physician. Uh, we've trained over 1,700 different physicians now in 10 different countries and all over the U.S., um, so you can look just you can look on drbredison.com or you can look at my cognoscopy, any of these uh, and get an idea of, you know, where to go, what to get. You can now do the cognoscopy, you know, directly uh, with mobile phlebotomy and everything, you know, mobile phlebotomist who can now you know take take your blood and look at uh, what's actually driving this and get a report for this. So, you know, we're we're moving toward a time in which Alzheimer's should be a rare disease. We, you know, this should not be so rampant. It has become the third leading cause of death in the United States, as shown yes. by Dr. Christine Yaffe. Yeah, after cardiovascular disease and cancer, it has now become the third leading cause of death. It's it's horrible. And so, uh, you know, this is something which should, again, should be rare. If people start early, if they get the appropriate prevention or early reversal, they should not be getting this disease. No, that's that's great news. I wanted to ask you about some of the factors that go into your analysis that, you know, may not be obvious to people that you discovered are, you know, really important. Um, but I also wanted to ask you about the trial you ran, whatever you want to talk about first. Sure. Well, they, they're certainly linked. Uh, so, yeah, you, you want to know things like your HSCRP, your C4A, your TGF beta. These are all things that are telling you. Do I have ongoing innate immune system activation? You want to know your HOMA IR, um, which is a, a, a measurement of your insulin resistance. This uh, co combines your uh, fasting glucose with your fasting insulin and then calculates a score based on that. You want to know the three groups of toxins that I mentioned. You Do you have a large burden of toxicity, which is relatively common? A lot of us are walking around. I mean, you think about it. If you get COVID-19, you usually know fairly quickly that you've gotten a problem. You may lose your sense of smell. You know, you may have trouble breathing. You may drop your oxygen saturation, those sorts of things. 
with ongoing cognitive changes, you don't know these various things that are happening to you for typically years. And so you may have a high toxic burden. You may have chronic pathogens. We had one person, for example, who had done well and improved dramatically, but then started backsliding a little bit. And we said, you know, something's now missing. There's something we don't understand here. And she turned out to have Babesia, which is a tick-borne organism, which you can have for years. And it contributes to ongoing inflammation, which is what was affecting her. And with treatment of that, she once again got better. So you want to look at these various pathogens. You want to look at the various toxins. And then you want to look at your vascular system. Um, so many of us have some degree of vascular damage, sometimes from ongoing inflammation, sometimes from simply you know uh, other forms of damage uh, and kind of classical vascular disease. So you want to know at least your your triglyceride to HDL ratio. Better yet, you'd like to know your LDL particle particle number or your oxidized LDL. Either one of those two, very helpful to know. And, um, and then you want to know a set of hormones. And nutrients. So you want to know your progesterone, pregnenolone, DHEA, estradiol, testosterone, as well as things like vitamin D that are actually crucial. As you know, vitamin D reduction has been associated, and so many of us are low in vitamin mm. D, has been associated with poor outcomes in COVID-19, poor outcomes in multiple sclerosis, and it is also associated with increased risk for cognitive decline. So incredibly common and incredibly important for these. So there's a whole set of things that you can look at that are critical, that give you an idea, which is why we set up this algorithm, um, that allows you to look at what are the things driving my potential decline. And of course, we talked earlier about leaky gut, incredibly common, something that was not appreciated when I was in medical school, but it has turned out to be very common and a very important contributor to multiple things, things, every, everything from lupus to rheumatoid arthritis to cardiovascular disease to Alzheimer's disease. And then there are things like oral microbiome. And you can now look at your oral microbiome with a test called oral DNA. Um, and very important to know that. Uh, so all of these things are critical to know to give you best chance of living a full, active, and, you know, and, and intelligent life until you're 100. Quick, quick question here. Have you taken your matrix of all the factors you look at and also taken various conditions like pre-diabetes, diabetes, you know, uh, previous heart attack, whatever, and assigned risk multipliers or risk factors for Alzheimer's based on, you know, your knowledge and all the patients you've observed? Are you at that point yet where you're able to say, okay, if someone has prediabetes or diabetes, they're at, uh, you know, three times the risk of developing Alzheimer's or if they're, yes. you know, their C-reactive protein is high. Have you been able to correlate that yet? Absolutely. And, and actually, you know, the, the good news here uh, is that there are already over 150,000 papers published on Alzheimer's disease. So the good news is we have a lot of information from the epidemiologists from the microbiologists, from the pathologists, from the toxicologists, all of these groups, from the neuroscientists, all of these groups have helped to point us in the right direction. The thing that's been lacking is what we talked about earlier, the understanding how to translate this into an accurate model so that you can say, aha, this is what this disease actually represents. And therefore, there's all this back and forth. It's, you know, it's reactive oxygen species, it's metal binding, it's, it's protein folding. None of those things has predicted accurately, you know, here's how you make it better. Now, you mentioned also the trial, and I should say a word about the trial. So way back in 2011, we proposed the first trial in history in which instead of trying one thing, you would look at a multivariable solution. And what we were told at the time by the IRBs, these review boards that allow, tell you if you're allowed to have human subject studies, they said, we will not allow you to do this study because it is a multivariable study. You have to look just at one thing. And of course, our response was, well, yeah, but this isn't a univariable disease. So this is a real problem. So we said, okay, we're going to see if we can get anecdotal improvement in people, publish that, then we can come back to the IRBs. So we started publishing in 2014, as I mentioned earlier, um, anecdotal reports. We had 10 in 2014, another 10 in 2016, and then 100 we published, 100 documented cases of improvement, which 
unprecedented. You know, people don't report improvements in Alzheimer's disease. And of course, the pushback was, well, you haven't done a clinical trial. Well, yeah, we started with a clinical trial back in 2011. They would not allow us to do it. You've got to start somewhere. So we published these. And then in 2018, after we published the 100 patient case, we then went back and, and asked the ARBs again, can we do this study now? And the response was no. So, so then in 2019, we finally got the go ahead for a proof of concept trial. So this is a relatively small trial. We're now gearing up to do a larger one because the small one has done so well. And so with that one, it's just 25 people who have MOCA scores of 18 or above. This is Montreal Cognitive Assessment. So these are people with early Alzheimer's or pre-Alzheimer's. And nevertheless, again, because it takes 20 years to get to that point, these are people who still have had underlying pathophysiology for quite a long time and are fairly significantly affected. You know, by the time you have Alzheimer's, that's like saying widely metastatic cancer. Uh, It's really the years and years of pre-Alzheimer's when you want to be jumping in there and doing what you can. You're not deemed to have full-blown Alzheimer's until you are losing your activities of daily living, literally the ability to care for yourself. That's how bad it is. Nobody should ever get that far along. When people have their, you know, beginning to have problems at their work or beginning to have problems with uh, their memories or with organizing things or calculating or facial recognition or finding the right word or spatial organization, driving, things like that, any of those things, they should be in immediately. So in any case, we had people who were, you know, still fairly far along, but not these, not, not the uh, mochas of zero. And these people did dramatically well. We've had some, you know, really striking improvements. And interestingly, the very few people who didn't improve, you could see when you looked at these larger data sets, why they weren't improving. And as an example, one of them had very high exposure to mycotoxins and simply didn't want to change things, didn't want to move out of the house, didn't want to get it remediated. Okay, no surprise. It's going to, you're going to have this ongoing protection of your brain against those mycotoxins by continued production of amyloid. So we're very excited about the, about the outcome. We're just, as I say, we're just writing this up for publication and then we'll be going on to a much larger study. What would you say to someone that's in their, you know, 40s or 50s and, you know, they're starting to forget names. They're starting to get, forget words for things. It comes and goes. They feel fine sometimes. Sometimes they like, damn it. You know, is that a, a sign that they're really headed for a problem soon or is that quote unquote normal? Well, you know, I know it's a general yeah. statement, but what's your thought? It's a great point, actually. And that's absolutely not normal. And so when you have that and it does, it's common, but it's not normal. And so again, we're told everything is backward because people have said, well, there's nothing we can do. So, you know, there's, we'll just say it is probably okay. No, please get in, please get evaluated as soon as possible. When you notice that something has changed, you have one of two things. You either have SCI or MCI. SCI is subjective cognitive impairment. In other words, you know something's wrong, but when you do your test scores, they're still within the normal limits. Now, again, that's a little bit misleading. You could be brilliant and you're falling from that until you where your test scores are quote normal, but they're not normal for you. So that's an unfortunate designation, but that's called SCI. If you don't do something about SCI, you'll typically then continue on, you'll progress to MCI, which is mild cognitive impairment. And by definition, what that means is not only do you know there's something wrong, but in fact, when you do your cognitive test scores, they are abnormal as well. SCI, virtually everybody can improve when they do the right things. MCI, most people can improve. Alzheimer's, full-on Alzheimer's, some people can improve. So again, the earlier you get in, the more you address what's actually causing this, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, I've had days where I feel completely clear and my mind's like going 100 miles an hour. And then, you know, I've had days where I didn't sleep well or, you know, if I had alcohol or something, and I'm like, oh, and your brain is just, you're just like a blob the whole day. What have you observed in terms of the results of treating people? Like how much better, do they, I know it depends, but how much better have some people gotten? Are there any stories that really stick out at you that showed the person, oh my God, I didn't realize that I was this way. I didn't realize I was already so impaired. Anything that jumps out at you in terms of a story? 
Oh, hundreds like that. In fact, I have a book coming out in August called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's and seven people who were having problems, basically told by their doctors, you got Alzheimer's, there's nothing I can do, um, are all back to doing very, very well. Um, and, you know, and as, you know, one woman was actually having to remind herself to drive on the right side of the road. That's how bad things got. And she's, you know, scoring uh, near perfect scores on her cognitive assessments now, doing very, very well. And um, we had another woman, a great example, a woman who uh, had a, went in, was clearly having problems. She kept forgetting to pick up her granddaughters and having problems with just her day-to-day life and remembering things. And went in and got on a, a drug trial for Alzheimer's and they did a scan and showed that she was positive amyloid scan. So she had very clear uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, she, she scored a 24 on the MOCA, which is, which means she had significant MCI. Uh, she had been a professor. So again, she's one of these people who was kind of a ceiling effect there. You don't start going down until you're fairly impaired. Uh, and so, so she was you know, not doing particularly well. Um, she got on the, the program and, the, and has done very, very well. Um, she's now scoring perfect 30s repeatedly. Uh, and again, doing the right things, targeting the things that were actually driving her problem. And she had both a genetic predisposition. She has a gene called ApoE4, which is a common one. There are over 30 different genes that contribute to your risk for Alzheimer's disease. But the most common one is called ApoE4. It's a, a specific variant, a specific allele epsilon 4 of the ApoE gene, which is uh, encodes a protein, apolipoprotein E, which carries fats. And so we all have two copies, one from our mother, one from our father. Uh, and the common one is an ApoE 3.3, which is what I am. I, I checked myself. Um, and it's kind of vanilla. It's standard. If you don't have any copies of four, which is about three quarters of the population, your risk for Alzheimer's in your lifetime is about 9%. It's not zero, but it's not terribly high. If you have a single copy, and that's 75 million Americans, most don't know it, you have about a 30% risk during your lifetime. And if you have two copies, and that's about 7 million Americans, you have a well over 50%. Most likely you will get Alzheimer's during your lifetime. So everybody should know their status. And please get on appropriate prevention, especially if you are ApoE4 positive, and especially if you have a family history of any cognitive decline. So this woman's done extremely well and continues to do well. And she has a wonderful story that she wrote uh, in the in the upcoming book. Have you been able to classify people? Well, of course you have with your data. Mm-hmm. So how well has your recode system worked for people that, you know, have no ApoE4 or double expression of it? These various cohorts or these groups that you described. Yeah, good point. Um, and interestingly, although your risk goes up with ApoE4, it actually tends to make you a little easier to treat because yeah. we know that ApoE4, one of its major effects is a pro-inflammatory effect. And we can deal with that. We can look at what's causing the inflammation. We can, uh, you know, we can reduce the inflammation over time. And so these people tend to do quite well. The people who are ApoE4 negative, while they are at lower risk for developing the disease, again, about 9% lifetime risk, on the other hand, they tend to, when they do have Alzheimer's disease, they tend to have more malignant causes of it. They tend to be the ones that have severe toxicity. Now, some of them do very well as well. And we have one woman we're dealing with, great woman from New York who's improved her PET scan, improved her MRI, improved her cognition. She's gone from the ninth percentile on her cognitive scores to the 97th percentile on her cognitive scores. In her particular case, she had multiple subtypes. She had reductions in some hormones, reductions in some nutrients, She, but she also had infection with some tick-borne organisms, another relatively common problem. Um, in her case, she had Ehrlichia, uh, which is, a, a, again, an organism that is from ticks that needs to be treated. It, it causes chronic inflammation. And so she's done quite well. And so, uh, so yes, it, it works for both ApoE4 positive and negative, but actually somewhat easier in general for the ApoE4 positives. Okay. But your program, like you said, has efficacy no matter what uh, your ApoE4 status is, right? Absolutely. Okay. What, what are some of the nuances of the program? It's looking at all these factors and then how do you adjust the factors? Because so many of them do. Do you have to address them all? Is there a subset that's critical depending upon your type of 
Alzheimer's risk. So that's a really good point. And that is really the difference between the most successful doctors who are able to prioritize and say, yes, you know, you've got, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten things that are contributing, but these two or three are, are likely to be the most important. So let's start with those and address those. Then we continue to add the others as time goes along. So yes, there are people who have major contribution from reduced oxygenation while you're sleeping. In some cases, because of sleep apnea. In some cases, because of other things like airway, uh, upper airway resistance syndrome, UARS, things like that. So again, most doctors are not checking for this, but it is an important contributor to cognitive decline. For some people, it is because of changes in oral microbiome. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, some of the organisms like P. gingivalis and T. denticola uh, can be identified in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's. And what do you think your brain does when it sees those? It coats them with amyloid, the very thing we associated with Alzheimer's. It does the same thing, by the way, for herpes simplex and fungi like candida. So all of these different things, you are responding to that. It's a little bit like, you know, if your president of your country is saying, hey, we're being invaded, we're now going to fight back um, by putting, uh, you know, by putting various things that would uh, things like napalm on the invaders. Okay, well, that that can, you may kill the invaders, but you're now living in a country with less arable soil. That's essentially what's happening to your brain with Alzheimer's. You are defending yourself, but in so doing, you are moving to a fewer number of synapses, trying to survive. So you need to identify those things that are actually causing this problem, which is why so we talked about, you know, in the long run, I think these drugs are going to be very helpful. You want to remove that amyloid after you're done needing it, but you don't want to remove it at a time when you still need it. So that's another one. So oral microbiome, finding the status of the gut. Do you have a leaky gut? What is your, what is your microbiome? Then finding the status of things like your insulin resistance, your vascular system. These are all critical. Identifying specific toxins. Is your glutathione up to snuff? Do you have enough glutathione, which many people don't? And then optimizing things like your brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So yes, we look at these things because that's the way the brain works. That's what it needs for optimal function. When you come in with cognitive decline, your brain is sputtering. Um, it's often we find people are coming in because they have undiagnosed sleep apnea, things like that. So you need to ferret these out. You need to go after them. And the standard evaluation for Alzheimer's fall, falls far short of evaluating the things that are actually producing it. So no surprise, the doctors turn around and tell you, yeah, you've got Alzheimer's. We don't know why you have it. You're not going to do well. Here, take this drug. It, it's again, it's kind of barbaric. You really need to look at what are the things that drive this. I um, mean, I mentioned the mycotoxins earlier. Dr. Richie Shoemaker has done a fantastic job. He has studied these mycotoxins for years and defined something he calls CIRS, SIRS, which is chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And you can look at these and say, what are the things that are driving this? And what are, you know, what's actually being activated by these different ones? And what can you do to detoxify from these? So how would you rank the biggest predictors? You talked about APOE4, which makes total sense, but I'm talking about, you know, other chronic conditions, uh, cancer, diabetes, um, you know, et cetera. What are the top conditions that people have that seem to correlate with Alzheimer's? Yeah, so pre-diabetes and metabolic syndrome would be probably number one. So again, something like 80 million Americans have insulin resistance. What happens, insulin is a really interesting hormone because as you know, it's critical for metabolism. It's critical for handling glucose. But guess what? It is also a very important trophic factor for neurons. So when we used to grow in petri dishes, neurons, you know, all the time for our experiments, uh, we would have to include insulin, transferrin, and selenium in the uh, medium to keep these neurons alive because they need the insulin for support. So no surprise, when you now have resistance to this, you're not responding to insulin the way you should, which is what happens when you've got a high-carb diet for many years, and so common, as I mentioned, uh, in the U.S. and in Western countries, 
then in fact, you are at increased risk. You're losing that nice trophic effect of insulin as well. So one of the most important things that you need to do is to restore insulin sensitivity. So you again have the advantage of that signaling. And then for energy, again, what's important is to get a level of ketones. And so as you know, there's so much now about ketogenic diets and you know, with good reason. Um, when you have Alzheimer's, you know, you're, again, you are having reduced energetic support of your brain. And you can see that, by the way, on a PET scan. You know, there is a reduced utilization of glucose in the temporal and parietal regions of people who have Alzheimer's. And it can go back, your APOE4 positive, into your 20s. So you're, you're losing the ability to metabolize glucose. Now you can bridge that energy gap with ketones. So you can start by taking some exogenous ketones, but in the long run, you want to be able to burn your own fat to use this for ketogenesis to give yourself the best outcome. And again, very, very helpful for support. And then again, looking at things like your nocturnal oxygen saturation, very nice paper showing that there's a direct correlation between your mean oxygen saturation while sleeping and the size of specific nuclei within your brain. So you're reducing your oxygen, you're also reducing your brain volume. So that's another critical area. And then, as I mentioned, various nutrients, uh, hormones and trophic factors, status of your vascular tree, all these things. The good news is, Although we used to be told that there's, and some groups are still saying this, it's really sad, there's nothing you can do to prevent, reverse, or delay Alzheimer's. In fact, the arsenal is huge, and you need to understand what's driving this to use the appropriate things from the arsenal. And as you indicated, you know, the leading factors, there are things like reduced oxygenation and chronic inflammation. Uh, and again, metabolic syndrome and leaky gut. These are all very common contributors to cognitive decline. What if we look at it in reverse? So people that have been on your recode protocol for a, you know, a period of time, I would bet that other conditions uh, either don't happen to them or the severity is reduced. So, you know, you have people that have uh, cognitive decline, but they also are diabetic. What happens to their diabetes when they're on your program? Uh, same thing with heart trouble, yeah. stenosis, et cetera. You know, that's a really good point because this is exactly what you'd imagine. You are improving your overall health as well. Most people lose some weight, uh, and, uh, you know, because they get into ketosis, uh, and we have people all the time. They no longer need antihypertensives. They no longer need anti-diabetic medications. They no longer need statin drugs because they have such good lipid profiles because yes, you know, you're now driving your system in the way it was evolutionarily designed to be driven. That is the problem. We have these complex chronic illnesses, things like hypertension and diabetes and, you know, and, and cardiovascular disease because we are attempting to live in a way that is not, we're not set up to live by our evolutionary design. We're not set up to be, to be having, you know, 50 grams of simple carbs a day. We're just not set up to do that. And so it's just like if you're, if you want to start jumping out of a third floor window every day, you know, you're going to get hurt. Uh, this is the same sort of thing. Humans were just not meant to do this. And yet we're trying to do this with all the processed foods and the toxins we're exposed to and the chronic stress that we have and the poor sleeping at night. These are all things that are contributing to our cognitive decline and we don't recognize it and our doctor doesn't recognize it until we get to the point where we really have major problems. And then the doctor says, yeah, you got Alzheimer's. We don't know where it came from. Well, you know, we, we do know where it came from if we bother to look. And how do people find out about your recode protocol? Do they talk to their doctor or how do they get started? Yeah, a couple of ways to do that. You can uh, simply go on uh, drbredison.com or you can look at mycognoscopy.com or read, you know, read one of the books. Uh, the end of Alzheimer's came out in 2017. The end of Alzheimer's program came out uh, last year, 2020. Uh, and take a look at these and they'll guide you in the right way as well. Uh, you can, you know, go on the websites. Um, and there again, you can get one of the doctors who's been trained. As I said, over 1700 doctors have been trained at this point and, and all over the U.S. Uh, so depending on where you are, there is likely to be someone near you who has been trained. 
Okay, excellent. Dale, last question or so. What do you see ahead in the next few years in terms of Alzheimer's treatment? Anything new or unless you're able to continue to advance your reach, the same parallel track of amyloid and tau hunting is going to go on, you know, ad infinitum. Yeah, no, there's going to be a dramatic shift. Just as there has been, you know, disruption and all the things with Silicon Valley, there are going to be fundamental changes. Um, you're going to see more with stem cells. You're going to see more with plasmalogens. You're going to see more with plasmapheresis. You're going to see more with a quantified self, all of the wearables that are going to tell you years ahead of time. There's already very interesting ongoing research on voice analysis and on keystroke analysis to tell people very early on you're beginning to have neurodegeneration you can get in now and reverse it completely so we're going to go from the current status where you go in very late and you they you're told there's nothing to be done i mean this is horrible so many people dying of this these neurodegenerative diseases to a point where these will be picked up much earlier there will be a much more complete analysis and a much more complete treatment there will be a lot of people on prevention and these literally will go from scourge to past scourge. Think about it. In the past, people worried about leprosy. That's no longer a scourge. Nobody wakes up worrying about leprosy today. Um, syphilis was a scourge. Polio was a scourge. All of these things. The smallpox was a scourge. This is the direction that Alzheimer's will go. It will become a past scourge. Is there any reason that people should say, I don't want to know, you know, I'm afraid of what I'll learn? Or is there hope for anyone and everyone? There's hope for everyone. There are a few, about 5% of the people will have familial Alzheimer's. We're working with some people with familial Alzheimer's now. I believe that they will ultimately be able to prevent in virtually all those people as well. Uh, but the answer is yes, we should know. This idea that, again, that the, so backward, where people say, don't bother to find out because there's nothing you can do. No, you want to find out, uh, you know. Uh, data represents power. Knowledge is power. So if you know these things, you can get ahead of this and you can prevent the cognitive decline or reverse the cognitive decline. And I think we will see more and more. We'll be able to do it later and later uh, in the decline process. But there's no reason for people to wait until that late. Please get in early. Excellent. Well, Dale, again, where can people go? What are resources for them now at the end of the call? Yeah, you can go to either Apollo Health Co., dot com, drbredison.com, mycognoscopy.com. If you want to get on prevention, uh, look up pre-code. So we developed pre-code, which is prevention of cognitive decline, uh, recently for people who are interested in prevention. So look up uh, pre-code as well. Uh, any of these things will give you excellent resources. Okay. Excellent. Dale, thank you for coming. It's been a very, very good call. Thank you. Great talking to you, Richard. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.